So uh, there's other texts that we could look at here for how the New Testament defines Israel. One, one other that I think is interesting is the way that Hebrews 8 through 10 thinks of who are those in the New Covenant. Um, and then once he understands all Christians to be in the New Covenant, he then goes back and looks at Jeremiah 31. And who is Jeremiah 31 promised to? Who's the New Covenant promised to? The house of Israel and the house of Judah, Right? So if you inherit the new covenant, you are part of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You're part of those to whom the promises were given. So that's how we're defining Israel, those who inherit the promises. Jesus and all those who are in him. Jesus and all those who are in him. And given our New Testament priority then, when we read the Old Testament references, especially to eschatological Israel... Well, actually, let's look, at one more, let's look at one more verse. Galatians 3.6. I'm sorry, Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The, the mystery is that Gentiles are part of the same body as Jews. And if you look at uh, Ephesians 2, remember that one time, at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ and you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were not part of Israel. Before, you were not part of Israel. But now, God has reversed all of that. Are we, are we separated from Christ, my friends? Yes or no? Yes, are we separated from Christ right now? No. Are we strangers to the covenants of promise right now? No. Do we have no hope in the world? No. Are we without God in the world? No. Well, then why would we pick the one in the very middle to say that that one does not apply to us? That one has not been reversed. We are not strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. We are part of the true Israel. Good. Um, so this doesn't mean we forget the histor histor historical reality of Israel, right? It does not mean that we forget the historical reality of Israel. But it does mean what the writer to the Hebrews says at the end of Hebrews 11. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Apart from us, the Old Testament Israel is not complete, it's not made perfect. The church is part of spiritual Israel. So this doesn't mean we don't read spirit, Israel literally in the Old Testament either. We read Israel literally, but we read it in light of progressive revelation. It means that when we read Israel in light of the revelation of God in Christ, we read it as the true Israel who is Jesus Christ and all those who are in him. Any questions on that? Let's look at Psalm 121 then, just as one example. I'm going to read this to you and uh, then talk about this in your group, what, what this can mean in light of what we just talked about. It's a song of ascents, right, right there walking up to Jerusalem. I lift my eyes to the hill. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. 
The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Right, so the center is that God is the keeper of Israel. And then we have certain promises because of that. Talk about that in your group. How should we read this psalm in light of everything we've discussed so far? So is this a psalm indicating that God has a special keeping, right? A special keeping ministry for the nation of Israel? Is that what it's teaching? Yeah, I mean, it definitely is in its original context, right? But given everything we've said and given our New Testament priority, is it saying that today, for instance, the nation of Israel is being kept, has a special keeping ministry from God, that to the, to the nation of Israel, the Lord is there, is the shade on their right hand. The Lord will keep them from all evil. The Lord will keep national Israel uh, life. The Lord will keep their going out and their coming in forever. Is that what it's saying? Faisal. Yeah. Yeah, I think Romans 9 helps us understand this. Not all Israel is Israel, right? Paul says that. And this is a promise given to Israel. that Within the context of Romans 9, things like this would be in mind. Not all Israel is Israel. God keeps his promises to spiritual Israel. So I think we can read this in our day, in our epoch of redemptive history, as a psalm about us. God keeps us. God does not slumber. God does not sleep. We say it, it's about us, and that is through Christ, right? First, it's about Christ. He keeps Christ. The Lord does not allow the sun to strike Christ by day or the moon by night, which is ironic when Christ is killed, right? But Christ is killed because he, as Israel, takes the covenant curses upon him. And that's why Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? right? It's, it's not an ontological forsakenness. It's a covenantal forsakenness on the cross. He is the descendant of David who's forsaken. He's the, he is the true Israelist forsaken. He's the offspring of Abraham who's forsaken, right? So in that it's about Christ, it's also about us, I think. Yeah, was there a question, Brian? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think so. I, I don't know if the author would have said that, but certainly reading back what Paul says in Romans 9 onto this, we can say, well, yeah, like the first generation died in the wilderness, right? If, if, all, if all physical Israelites inherit the promises and the blessings, then why in the world did the first generation die in the wilderness? Wouldn't they have all gotten into the promised land unconditionally? No. Why? Because not all Israel is Israel. 
What about the second generation? Achan didn't inherit the promised land. He was killed. Why didn't Achan inherit the promise? Because not all Israel is Israel. Right? Yeah, is, was God the keeper? Was he, did he keep from all evil all the Israelites? What about the generation in the exile? Right? How would we interpret that? Well, not all Israel is Israel. And so, God keeps us ultimately from evil and that He will give us eternal life in His presence and He will protect us from evil, being the all-consuming force in our lives, things like that. Good. Any questions on that before we move to the next one? Let's talk about Christ in the land. This is a little bit longer one. If we have time, we'll go back to the priesthood. Let's, yeah. Oh, no, yeah, what's up? It is. Yeah. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so I think I think God's intent has always been that the entire world would receive the blessings of the gospel. I think that's clear. It's 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 implicit in the Abraham subdued or uh, the Adam subdued the earth. Um, it's implicit, or it's explicit in Genesis 12, right? In you all nations of the world, world will be blessed. It's explicit in um, Exodus 19. It's explicit in Jonah. God has always desired that the ends of the earth would come to know him. And the, one of the resounding themes of the Psalms is the, the ends of the earth would come to know God. Um, but Israel failed to keep the covenant, I think. Um, but we see hints of God working outside of the nation of Israel also, right? So there are some people who join themselves to Israel, like Rahab is an, an example of that. But then Job. Job is not connected to the narrative at all. And somehow he has special revelation from God. He performs sacrifices to God, things like that. And I think, I think we can say that um, in one sense... Uh, Job provides an, an idea of God working outside of the nation of Israel uh, and saving, doing re redemptive things with those people. <clears throat> However, um, I do think that we can say that uh, um, because the law has universal condemning power and because all became sinners in Christ, it's never unjust of God to condemn people who don't believe. Um, and maybe the reason we have a problem with that is that we don't have a high enough view of the holiness of God and the Old Testament would call us to that um, but any question like that would be sourced out of compassion and care and concern and I wouldn't want to make you feel bad because of that but um, I don't want to encourage that but yeah I think that's the reality we have to face, is that Israel failed to do what God called them to do, which is bring the salvation to the ends of the earth. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. That's why the new covenant is better. 
Israel broke the covenant. Good. Any other questions about that? Yeah, Mikey. Mm-hmm. Uh, the old covenant was was good, um, but it did not bring with it the ability to keep it. No, 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 no. It's not weak. Um, God just does not promise that every member of the covenant will know the Lord until the new covenant. God is still as able to save. However, the, the law, the, the covenant of Moses, the covenant of Moses is intended to function, Galatians 3 and 4, to point people to Christ. And so, and so it has always had that function. Even when it was given on Mount Sinai, it was intended to point people to Christ and show the need for mercy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It does not give the ability. It does not give the ability to do what it commands. It has always been like that. Yeah, I mean, God dispenses new regenerate hearts to whomever he wills. He did it before giving the new covenant. He gives it during the new covenant era. And we can say that, um, like the writer of the Hebrews said, it was, it was incomplete, and with us, they are perfected. There are new, there are new heart people in the old covenant time. Um, however, only when the new covenant comes into play do we see how much better it is because every member of the covenant has the new new covenant heart it, it the new covenant accomplishes what the old covenant was never able to accomplish but always pointed to because it always was intended to point to our need for christ our need for mercy and it always pointed to the idea of the circumcised heart deuteronomy 30. it always the, the old covenant always pointed beyond itself and even when it was given it was clear that it's incomplete and this is not the final redemptive uh work of god for his people Good. Let's talk about land. So if you're going to do a biblical theology of land, talk to the person next to you about that. A special reference to how it's fulfilled in Christ. How is land fulfilled in Christ? Talk to the person next to you. Biblical theology of land. And go. Okay, let's all come back together. So before, I just kind of want to introduce the topic to you guys, right? I just want to get your, get your gears turning, that's all. Before we talk about specifics of biblical theology of land, let's talk about a couple biblical theological ideas, right? So type and anti-type. So uh, there are old covenant realities that are shadows that point us to new covenant realities, which are Christ, right? So Colossians 2.17, great example of that. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question to food and drink with regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Right. And all of Hebrews is written to do that, to say that all these old covenant realities point us to Jesus. And what are the three promises given to Abraham? 
land, offspring, and blessing. Good. How is the blessing promise fulfilled in the new covenant? How is the blessing promise fulfilled in the new covenant? Yeah, the promised Holy Spirit. Everyone is blessed in Christ. Exactly. Yeah. It's the preaching of the gospel, right? All the nations are blessed with the preaching of the gospel. Paul says that. The offspring. How is that fulfilled in the new covenant? Yeah. We are the children, right? Good. So then, for, for some reason, though, and I think, I think that it's for eschatological reasons, um, there's a reluctance in some people to see land in the same categories. Okay? So let's talk type and anti-type. That there is the, the, the idea of land, but that doesn't have an anti-type in the New Covenant. That doesn't have a fulfillment in the New Covenant, right? Because the, the land is just kind of special, and we, ex- we need like a physical land in Israel. Even people who would be persuaded of type, anti-type, hermeneutics, might be uh, disinterested in or less persuaded by ideas of type, anti-type for the, for the land. Or at least apply an inconsistent hermeneutic, Right? Or about the Abrahamic blessings? If we see the Abrahamic covenant, two of the three fulfilled already in the new covenant, shouldn't that prompt us to seeing the land and somehow fulfilled in the new covenant, right? Now, the difficulty, though, is, is land a very a topic that the New Testament writers are incredibly interested in, or no? Not in particular. <laughs> yeah, I think we can say that in one sense, but not explicitly. Like, we don't have... A lengthy chapters about land promise. We don't have entire books written to talk about that, like we do Galatians and Ephesians and Romans, which are especially concerned with who are the offspring of Abraham, right? We don't have lengthy books written about what is the land. Anyway, so those are just some introductory ideas, okay? We'll talk more about answering those. Um, but I do think we need to consistently interpret type anti-type as... Old Testament uh, shadows that point to New Testament realities of Christ. So just like, and I think that just like all Old Covenant realities, the land stood as a prophecy. The land was a prophecy. It was a signpost. It pointed to a reality beyond itself. I think it pointed to heaven and it pointed to Christ. Uh, Walker in Jesus in the Holy City said this, The patriarchs were looking forward not so much to the day when their descendants would inherit the physical land, as to the day when they themselves would inherit the heavenly country, which the physical land signified. They saw through the promise of the land, looked beyond it into a deeper spiritual reality. The promise concerning the land, while real and valid in its own terms, pointed typologically to something greater. What text might he be thinking of when he says that? What's that? Hebrews 11. Was Abraham looking for the promised land? No. He was looking to the heavenly Jerusalem, right? The, the author of the Hebrews understands that even Abraham himself, the one to whom the land promise was given, knew that the land was a prophecy, knew that the land was a signpost, knew that the land pointed to something greater than itself. Land first begins in Eden, right? Land did not become significant with Abraham, and that's important for us to remember. Land became significant as soon as God created the world and placed man in the garden in Eden. And the theme of land is significant in the Bible. This is key. The theme of land is significant in the Bible, not because of Genesis 12, but because of Genesis 3. 
Land is significant in the Bible, not because of Genesis 12, but because of Genesis 3. Because Genesis 3 introduces the theme of exile. It introduces a category of there being a special land in which God dwells, in which God resides, and sin has cast us off from. So even in the promises given to Abraham of land, it's not intended to be a story in and of itself. It's intended to be part of a much bigger story in which God's people and God dwell together in the same place once again. So, so the exile of Adam and Eve becomes the archetype of exile. Is the archetype of leaving God's presence. Is the archetype of experiencing God's blessing. Right? That was Eden. So Abraham is called to leave his own land in Genesis 12 and go to the land of promise. Go to the land that God intends for him to inherit. And the intent, remember, of, of the covenant with Abraham is to bless the nations. It's to bless the nations. And I think we see that when the prophets interpret the land. Look at Ezekiel 38, 12. Thus says the Lord God, On the day thoughts will come to your mind, and you will devise evil schemes and say, I will go up against the land of, unwell, of unwalled villages, and I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates, to seize the spoil and carry off the plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited, and the people who, who were gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods to dwell in the center of the earth. It's talking about Israel and having Gentiles living among them, right? Living in the land and Israel mistreating them. That's the context. But what is the land called at the end of verse 12? What is the land called? The center of the earth. The focal point of God's redemptive happenings. The dwelling place of God's people. Not literally at the center, Right? Unless you're Faisal and you think there's a flat earth and like somehow you can convince me that like, I don't know. I don't know. Even then, I don't think it's at this. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, none of it makes sense. But anyway, Israel is seen as the center of the earth in this text. And if you look at Ezekiel 5.5, 5, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have sent her in the I have set her in the center of the nations with all the countries around her. Why was that land chosen? That land wasn't chosen for no reason. It was chosen because God wanted to bless the nations from the center of the world. And all the countries around Israel, placed around, especially in their context, when people wanted to go from north to south or south to north, they would pass through Israel, right? So Abraham, going back to Abraham. So the, the point of the land, that I, what I'm trying to say is the point of the land is to bless the nations. The point of the land has always been to bless the nations. And that's why God says, in you all nations of the world, world will be blessed. So does Abraham get the land? No. But he does get one piece of land in the promised land. What is that? Yeah, the burial place for his wife in Genesis 23. The land promise is threatened in the story of the Bible with the famine, but then... Joseph leads the people out of the land so that they can have, uh, they can experience the blessings of prosperity outside of the promised land, right? In Egypt. 
And I think we can say if Abraham, if, if the writer to the Hebrews said that Abraham was looking for fulfillment outside of the land, I think we could say that Joseph likely was too. It's not just a statement of, of trust in the promised land. Uh, it, Joseph was willing to see God fulfilling his promises to his people outside of the promised land. And I think, what, how does Genesis end in uh, Genesis 50 with Joseph? Joseph says what? take my bones back, right? He, he wants his bones to go back to the promised land. But I think if we read it typologically also, if we read it in light of the fact that God's people were looking for hope, we're looking for a final resting place outside the promised land, we can say this is faith and resurrection, right? Because Abraham was looking for a city that the land pointed beyond. So if Joseph was too, then Joseph is saying, I'm not, <laughs> this is not my final destination. Old covenant. Old covenant. Who does the land belong to? Who does the land belong to? Israel. Look at Leviticus 25, 23. The land shall not be sold in per perpetuity, for the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. Who does the land belong to? Israel, sure, but who gives Israel the land? God. God gave Israel the land. God gave a special land to the nation of Israel. Miller says this, there's a strong parallel with the New Testament soteriology here. God has done all the work. He has assured Israel that the land is theirs. He will fight for them but yet they must obey. They must take possession of what is going to be given to them, remembering always that they are doing it, that they are doing so, that they're doing so is entirely the work of God on their behalf. God gives them the land. He promises them the land. And the land is the place of blessing, right? It's the place of blessing. And what happens if they disobey? They get exiled. And what's the picture that's used of exile? Over and over and over again. Mean what out of the land? being vomited out of the land. I mean, it's a very, I mean, it's a very explicit visual picture, which if we start to read our New Testament, maybe, maybe when Christ says to the seven churches, I'll, uh, I'll spit you out of my mouth, right, to the church in Laodicea, maybe that harks back to the being vomited out of the land. Actually, the word that's used there for being spewed out of my mouth is the word for vomiting, Anyway, back to the Israel story. Israel inherits the land. The kings are supposed to rule over it just like Adam was supposed to rule over it. They fail to do so, and so they are exiled. They return from exile, and the prophets envision a day when the land is expanded. When the promises uh, given to Israel in the land will be experienced by the whole world. Look at Zechariah 2, 1 through 5. What was the purpose of the land? Blessing the nations, right? God sent it to the center of the world to bless the nations. And I lifted my eyes and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem and to see what its width and length are. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to the young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. 
Jerusalem's not going to have walls. It can't have walls because it can't contain all the people who eschatologically are going to inherit Jerusalem, who are going to live in this land. Look at Habakkuk 2.14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The God who dwells in Israel, the God who is known in Israel, will not just dwell in Israel. He will not just be known in Israel. He will dwell in the whole earth. He will be known in the whole earth. This one's interesting. Isaiah 19, 16 through 25. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand of the Lord of hosts who shakes them over. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purposes of the Lord of hosts that he purposed against them. In that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. Do you see this? What the land in this verse is Egypt. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of Israel, in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its borders. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. Do you see the word land of, land of, land of? And it's Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender to deliver them. That sounds like the judge's story, doesn't it? And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and worship with sacrifices and offerings. Where were worship and sacrifices and offerings only allowed to take place? In the mercy, at the promised land. That's the problem with John 8. The prediction here is that sacrifices and cultic worship practices will happen not just in the land of Israel, not just in the temple, but Egypt, the place of the enemies of the people of God. And they will make vows to the Lord, and the Lord will, stri- will strike Egypt and striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercies and heal them. And get this, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Where is, where is Egypt in relationship to Israel? South. Where is Assyria in relationship to Israel? North. There's a highway that goes from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria to Egypt, which means they pass right through where? They pass right through Israel. And they don't stop. Because the place of worship is in Egypt. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Do you see that? Ezekiel 37 predicts the return from exile as the giving of the Holy Spirit also. Ezekiel 37, 12 through 14. Resurrection, return from exile, the giving of the Holy Spirit, all of these happen at the same time. So in the New Covenant... Let's think about how these themes come together. I want to especially focus on four themes that all culminate in Christ. One, the theme of a dwelling place. Two, the theme of exile. Three, the theme of rest. And four, the theme of creation. I think all four of those themes culminate in Christ to say that the land promises are fulfilled in him. So first, a dwelling place, right? Jesus is the eschatol- Jesus brings the eschatological fulfillment of the land promise. Look at Matthew 5.5. 5. 
Where does the eschatological Israel dwell? Where is their place of security? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is a people of God defining statement. Who inherits the land? Who inherits the earth? It's not those who are circumcised. It's not those who have the blood of Abraham. It's those who are meek. They inherit the world. Compare that even to uh, Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of the evildoers, and be not envious of the wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as light and justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord will inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land. Jesus is directly quoting Psalm 37.11. And in Psalm 37.11, it's in reference to Israel as opposed to the evildoers. Matthew 25.34 also. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Compare that to Leviticus 20, verse 24. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give, you to prese- to give it to you as a possession, a land flowing with milk and honey. Inheritance language consistently in the Old Testament has to do with the land. It, go through Joshua once again. Circle all, especially the second half of Joshua. The word inheritance is always has to do with dividing up the land. You've inherited this territory. You've inherited this ter- territory. You've inherited that territory. But what does the king say? You inherit the kingdom prepared for you from, from the foundation of the world, given to the church, all of the sheep versus the goats. First Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Consider even Hebrews 3 through 4, right? I mean, those are two entire chapters written about this topic. The rest that Joshua won, the rest that Moses was promised, it pointed beyond itself to the rest in the new creation, right? That we find when we, unlike our fathers, join to God with faith. God was displeased, Psalm 95, with the first generation of Israelites, and so they did not enter rest, but we enter rest through Christ. We have the dwelling place, the eschatological dwelling place. So that's the eschatological fulfillment of land, but there's also present experiences of having a dwelling place now, aren't there? John 4 is a great example. Where will we worship? That mountain or that mountain? Jesus says, no, you worship in the truth. If you are in the truth, if you live in the truth, it doesn't matter where you're geographically located, it matters your relationship to me. John 15, 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, dwell in me, find your residence in Christ. Even Paul uses in Christ language in Ephesians 1, for instance. He calls them the saints who are in Ephesus, but they are also in Christ Jesus. Two uses of the locative dative there to say they have two locations in which they're living, in Christ as well as in Ephesus. Uh, Miller once again says this, the theology of land provides the conceptual backdrop for the description of the life with Christ in the new covenant, in which all, res- all, all restrictions on believers' intimacy with him are taken away. And they see him face to face. This inheritance is anticipated by a theology of the land. The inheritance in Christ is no doubt different than the land received and lost by Israel, but it is greater and not less than the land. In that we have an inheritance in Christ, we experience the inheritance the land typologically pointed to. That's number one. Second, exile. This was a question on that. Good, so exile, where, when's, the, when's the first exile occur? Garden of Eden, right? They're kicked out of the land. Israel experiences a similar exile for their unfaithfulness. And where do we see exile mentioned in the New Testament? Where do we see it mentioned in the New Testament? Or I guess to give more backdrop, I'm flying through my notes here. To give more backdrop, the, the coming back to the land was associated with the forgiveness of sins and the giving of the Spirit, right? We've already seen that, especially in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37. Where do we see this in the New Testament, a return from exile? We talked about one this morning, right? The Jeremiah 31 quote in Matthew 2. Israel is in spiritual exile, followed immediately by people being baptized in the Jordan River, right? What other, where else do we see the idea of returning from exile in the New Testament? Yeah, I think so, in that Pentecost undoes Babel, right? Is that what you were thinking? Or? Yeah, oh yeah, the Spirit is given. If the Spirit is given, then you've returned from exile. That's good. If, you're, if your sins are forgiven, you've returned from exile. Look at uh, Hebrews 12, 14. Sorry, Hebrews 2, 14. Hebrews 13, 14. <laughs> Jesus suffered in his crucifixion in exile. Did you know that? Jesus was exiled in his crucifixion. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He did not, he did not die inside of the gate, but outside of the gate. Therefore, let us go to him outside of the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. And uh, parodidomi which is consistently used for, it's, it means the word to hand over, to give over. Jesus is said to be handed over, to be given over to the Gentiles in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts of the crucifixion. He is handed over to Gentiles. If you're handed over to Gentiles and you are the new Israel, then you are experiencing exile in your crucifixion. So I, I think there are some senses in which we experience a return from exile already in Christ. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 25. 
sorry, 1 Peter 2, 25. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You were once straying. You once didn't have a home. Now you have come to Christ. Now you have a home. We have a present home and we're no longer wanderers. And God's presence is with us in Jesus also, right? The problem with exile is that you're out of God's presence. So if Emmanuel comes... If the one who is with you to the end of the age comes, well then, you're back from exile. Colossians 1.13 also says we're citizens of heaven. We're part of the kingdom of his beloved son already. We're part, we've come back from exile. Revelation 1.9 also confirms this. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. The kingdom is in Christ and we partake in that kingdom now. We're already resurrected into heaven now, right? Ephesians 2, 6. We are seated at the right hand of God, and we are in the heavenly places. We're actually already in the place of eschatological rest in a spiritual sense because we already experienced a spiritual resurrection. And our sins are forgiven now also, right? If our sins are forgiven, we've been brought back to the land, we've been brought out of exile. But eschatologically, of course, it points to the new heaven and new earth, the church... If we look at 1 Peter 1.1, the church are the elect exiles of the dispersion. We experience today a sense in which we're still exiled because we're looking forward to the promised land. Hebrews 11.13 says the same thing. John 1, or James 1.1 1, 1 says the same thing. And the church is called not to love the present world, right? 1 John 2.15. We're instead to look for the world that is to come, the creation that is to come. And 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Right? That's our eternal dwelling place. Our eternal home is with Christ. Third, we're halfway there, guys. Rest. Rest in the Old Testament. Where is the first time we see rest? Genesis what? Yeah, day seven. Day seven is the rest. So rest, which was found in the land, is what we end up finding. It ultimately pointed to the rest that God experienced on day seven, right? It, wasn't, it was never an end in itself. Just like exile was never, uh, did not begin with Israel, um, the, a, a special land did not begin with Israel, so rest did not begin with Israel. So to, to think that all of these kind of find their only location for these is in a special promised land, I think ignores where we saw land originally in Eden. Adam works in the garden, but work is made toilsome because of sin. Then the Sabbath offers for God's people a rest similar to what God had on the seventh day, right? They cease from working, and they follow the pattern of rest, in fact, the, old, the entire land was expected to rest, Deuteronomy 5.14, right? So then, the presence of God comes to dwell with his people. We've seen Eden language again. And then, uh, Joshua says that, that when they inherited the land, rest was given. So Joshua 11.38. Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it to them for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotment, and the land had rest. 
from war. It's said three times in Joshua, actually. Joshua 22, 1 through 6, and Joshua 1, 13 through 15 also. Rest and land go together. If you're experiencing rest, you're in the land. But then also, the temple and the presence of God uh, further share this theme of rest because God rests when the Ark of the Covenant comes and dwells in the temple, right? 1 Kings 8, 54 through 61. 1 Chronicles 6, 13, 28 to the Lord rests and the people rest when the temple is completed also. Again, harking back to the creation of the cosmic temple in the Garden of Eden. The Lord rested there. The Lord also rested at the end of the, the temple. So if you're in God's presence and you're in God's land, the, result, the reward is rest. So the exile, is a loss, exile is seen as a loss of rest. Look at Lamentations 1.3. Judah has gone into exile because of her affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations, but she finds no resting place. Exile, to be exiled is to find no resting place. The same with Lamentations 5.5. 5. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary and we are given no rest. Of course, Jeremiah is writing in exile, right? And return from exile is the same as experiencing rest. Look at uh, Isaiah 32, 17. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in peaceful habitation, in secure dwelling, and in quiet resting places. And uh, Isaiah 14, 3 through 7, when you have time later, look at that, uh, explicitly says this comes to the return from exile, this resting place. And there's hints also of worldwide, worldwide rest. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is His name. He will surely plead their case that He may give rest to who? The earth. But unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. There's a hint here that rest is intended not just for Israel, but for those beyond Israel as well. And the temple is the ultimate place of divine rest, remembering the seventh day. Isaiah 66, 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What, what is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? The temple is the place of rest. The land is the place of rest. And the hope, the, the hope, there's a hope given for returning to rest in Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is the one that uh, Hebrews quotes about them not entering the rest, right? But if you look at verses 6 through 11, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, and the as on the day of Manasseh in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, There are people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The implication is that rest is still available to the people of God. Don't be like them. Don't harden your hearts like them. That's exactly how the writer of the Hebrews interprets it. So then rest in the New Testament, right? Rest in the New Testament, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. To people who are in exile, to people who are weary, for people who still don't have all the promises of God, Jesus says, come to me, 
all you who labor, that's work, right? Work experienced as a result of the curse and are heavy laden. You are an exile like Adam. You are an exile like Israel. I will give you rest. This is a significant statement of Jesus as the fulfillment of what the land always intended. or uh, Jesus is what the land always pointed to. The rest from war, the rest in the temple, the rest that was promised to Israel always pointed to Christ. Rest is found in the temple, rest is found in the land, and Christ gives us that rest. His eschatological rest also, right? Hebrews 3 and 4 being the big one. The rest that we're looking for, like Abraham, is not for a city here. It's a city that's to come. It's for the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the church, right? The church is the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the holy Mount Zion, according to Hebrews 12. We experience that now, but we look forward to the day when we'll experience it in full. Look at Revelation 14, 11 through 14, for the opposite. For those who don't trust in Christ, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. It's a statement of them not being in the promised land, not being the eschatological promised land. They're outside of the place where God dwells with his people. Lastly, Jesus in creation. So I think creation is the final theme. We need to weave together to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the land. First, creation in the Old Testament, of course, Genesis 1 and 2. And the creation un, undone and then redone in Genesis 6 through 8. And the, the Exodus story also is an example of uncreation and recreation. But in Jesus, the new creation comes, right? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Uh, John 19.30, Jesus is carried after his crucifixion into a garden, and he's resurrected on the eighth day, right? Yeah, the, the Sunday. It's the beginning of a new creation, right? The beginning of a new creation week begins in Christ. He doesn't resurrect on the Sabbath, he resurrects on the eighth day. So then Jesus is seen as the head of the new creation. Ephesians 1, 10 through, or 9 through 10 Seeing Jesus as the second Adam sees Jesus as the head of a new creation. And Jesus is the first to experience the new creation, but the church will experience it in full. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 24. But in fact, Christ has been raised for the dead and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all died, so Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Christ is the first one to experience the resurrection, the new creation, as the, as the new Adam, the head of the new order. And we will experience that too. And the church, the church is the new creation, right? If the church is the new creation, the church inherits the land promise. The church is the rest that... Uh, the old covenant was pointing to Galatians six fifteen that we all that we already saw. There's neither circumcision that counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Are you a part of the new creation? The the church is a garden in First Corinthians three. I think also Paul planted, Apollos watered, God provided the increase. And then the most explicit is Second Corinthians five seventeen.
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And the fact that Jesus, as the second Adam, rules over us indicates that we are that new creation also. But there's a new creation that we're still longing for, and even though we are the new creation now, we're still waiting for the new creation in full. 2 Peter 3.13 But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That we see in Revelation 21 too, right? Revelation 21 is God dwells with man and there's no temple. Temple, of course, being needed in the land, the place of divine rest. But there's no temple for the lamb is the temple and we walk in his light. So then what's the extent of the land in the new creation? Is the new creation simply a small strip of land in the Middle East? No. Romans 4.13, God promised Abraham that he would inherit where? The earth. Matthew 5.5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Ephesians 6.3 even um, takes the command that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land these children, I think interpreted in light of our biblical theology, the implication is eternal life. Right? For those who have new covenant hearts and obey their parents from the heart. And God is worshipped wherever the Spirit is present. John 4, once again. It's not restricted to a specific piece of land. In Romans 8, 22 through 23, the whole creation experiences the removal of the curse. The whole creation experiences what Isaiah 55 proclaims. The trees clapping their hands and rejoicing, right? As the call of the gospel comes. We know the whole creation groans now, but one day, the creation, the world will be released from decay. Not just us, and not just a small strip of land in Israel, but the whole world, the whole cosmos. And lastly, the heavenly Jerusalem in the new covenant is the church. Galatians 4.26. The Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. What you look for is not the Jerusalem below. You don't need the physical Jerusalem. You need the heavenly Jerusalem, my friends, which the church possesses, which Abraham longed for, Hebrews 12.22. Christians have come already to the Jerusalem in heaven, Right? You have come to Mount Zion. Where is Zion? It's Jerusalem. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You're there, my friends, already. In the place where Jesus is currently ruling and reigning as the Davidic king, where does Jesus currently rule and reign? Over the church, right? Acts 2, 30-36. God has made him both Lord and Christ, and he rules over his church which, of course, the land in the Old Covenant was where the Davidic king ruled. And ultimately, Jesus will reign forever and ever in the new creation as the new Adam, as the king of the universe. He's not going to rule simply in a place in Israel. He's going to rule over the world. So that's my argument. I think the church experiences the benefits of the land now. I think that the new creation is seen as the fulfillment of the land. We, we enjoy the benefits now in Christ, and because of Christ, we inherit eternal rest, eternal temple, the new Jerusalem, the new creation. 
all of us. Let's talk about preaching. Let's talk about preaching. How do you think biblical theology rightly fits into preaching? Or let's ask this. Can you develop a sermon series on the story of the Bible? And if you did, how would you do it? Talk to the person next to you about that. If you, if you decided, guys, we're doing a sermon series on the story of the Bible, how long would it be? How would you do it? What text would you cover? Okay, talk about that together. And then hopefully save this list and you can like use it in ministry one day also, right? Doing a sermon series, story of the Bible, how do you do it? Okay, guys, so can you do a sermon series on the story of the Bible, yes or no? Yes. Yeah, I think, I think you rightly can. How does that help a church? Or in what situations might you, would you, would you just do it for any church because it's good for everyone? Would there be some situations when you do it, some situations you don't? What do you think? Yeah. It helps you get a big picture of scripture. Yeah, yes, of course. Okay. Oh, good. Yeah. So, which text would you address? Which text would you use? <clears throat> yeah. Would you do one sermon? Would you do multiple sermons? And if you did more than one sermon, or even one sermon, what text would you do? Which ones would you mention? So you could do it by theme if you wanted to. So you're thinking maybe do a sermon series and each one covers a different theme, right? So one maybe, what, what, which themes would you do if you did that? Okay, good. What else? Maybe one more. Yeah. A biblical theology of redemption, a biblical theology of kingdom, a biblical theology of covenant. I could see how all those would serve. What if you do, what if you did like a series that slowly worked through the story of the Bible? Which text would you do if you did that? So like week one might be Genesis 1. The whole book? <clears throat> you would do a whole sermon on just Genesis 1. Do they kind of lay the foundation? Yeah, okay. One through two. Okay, good. What else would you do? A whole sermon on Genesis 3? Okay. What else? Yeah, you got to do 12. Would you do 12 through 17 in one? Oh, Genesis 6? Yeah. We could say 6 through 9, probably. What else? Would you cover Jacob and Esau and... That kind of stuff, or no? Why do we not talk about Jacob and Esau this week? Yeah, so I mentioned that God's covenant with Abraham is also extended to his children. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think there's significant progress made in the Jacob and Esau story. That What, what we find in the Jacob and Esau story is that this covenant is multi-generational, right? Okay, so skip from Genesis 17 to Judges. What? Oh, Genesis. Yeah, let's say Exodus. You would cut, oh, Exodus 3? Or maybe 1 through 20 in a single sermon? I think you do 1 through 20 in one sermon. 
Yeah, I think you do Exodus 1 through 20 in a sermon. Yeah, for sure. Yep, and I think it's significant biblical. I mean, there's many ways we can make biblical theological connections to that. Right, but if we're if we're talking about what text do I preach and which ones do I not? Is this a text about butterfly the fish and tree truth, Kashmir Goldie the third the fish, or is this uh, a significant event? Right. I mean, I could I could if I want to go through the whole story of the Bible. I mean, I could take all of my life doing that. But is that really what I want to do? Yeah. I think we can say they're more relevant to the progress of the story. Right? So Genesis 12 is more relevant to the progress of the story of the Bible than uh, Jacob putting on a garment to be dressed like Esau. Right? I mean, Genesis 12 is a major event. Jacob tricking his father into receiving the blessing, not a major event. However, however, though, I think that we can read that typologically, right? Because Christ is our elder brother. He is the one set to inherit the blessing. He is the one to whom all the promises made. And yet he covers us in his righteousness. He covers us in himself so that we go to the Father and the Father blesses us, right? Not because of deception, but because Christ is our good elder brother. Oh, yeah, there's progression in the story, most definitely. I'm not saying no story happens after Genesis 17. I'm just saying that Genesis 12, if you're going to, I mean, if you, let's say you're preaching through Jude. Can you preach 200 sermons on Jude? Yeah, you can. Should you preach 200 sermons on Jude? Probably not. Probably not. Can you preach 200 sermons on the story of the Bible? Yeah. Should you preach 200 sermons on the story of the Bible? Probably not. Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah, exactly. No. Yeah, I think if I was doing it, I would do Genesis 1 through 3 as a, ser- as a sermon. Then I would do Genesis 6 through 8 as a sermon. Then I would do Genesis 12 through the end of the book as a sermon. And I would cover it with the lands of land, offspring, and blessing. I would do Genesis. I would do Exodus one through twenty as a sermon. Then I would. I might do Joshua th- through Solomon as a sermon. Joshua through Solomon as a sermon. As one sermon. As one sermon. <laughs> 
covering the theme of land and kingship, right? Um, then I would probably do uh, the promise of the new covenant as a sermon and do a survey of the prophets. Then I would probably do the story of Jesus as a sermon. And then maybe I'd do one more talking about the, how the church is united to the body of Christ and we inherit the blessings. And then conclude that sermon with the end of Revelation. That's probably how I would do it. But you can do more than that or less than that. Or you can do one sermon on it. But yeah, James. Uh, I think what Genesis 6 through 8 does is set up a framework um, of uh, God as covenant keeper. And you can get a lot done in understanding God as covenant keeper and the way that Noahic covenant um, functions in relation to the rest of the covenants. That is one I could take or leave, though. But, yeah, I think Genesis 6 through 8 is pretty significant to helping people see how the Bible is one story but then also helping people understand that God is the faithful covenant keeper. That's probably what I would hit. But I could take it or leave it. You could do Genesis 1 through 8 in one sermon. Genesis 1 through 9 in one sermon, probably two. And just cover Noah, Noah very briefly, if you wanted to. Just do Genesis 1 through 3 and then a second sermon on Revelation 21 and 22. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I said at the beginning of this class, we could, do, we could do a class just going, walking through one book of the Bible and make it a biblical theology. That's what, that's what um, Ben did with you guys, basically. He just did a biblical theology class from Genesis, for the most part, especially Genesis 1 through 3. <laughs> like, you could do that. That's, that's biblical theology still. Good. So that's developing a sermon series. Um, yeah. I think so. Yeah, if you wanted to use Exodus 32, 33, 34, you could do an entire sermon series on that. Let's, let's, let's apply our biblical theology now, okay? Let's apply our biblical theology to a certain text. My friend, you're assigned to preach 1 Samuel 15, 24 through 31. 1 Samuel 15, 15, 24 through 31. I want you to talk in your group. How do you preach this? Not just the meaning of the text. How do you preach it in light of biblical theology? What would you mention? What would you not? And how do you, I would say this, how do you appropriately apply biblical theology to a text? Because if all you do is stand up and start doing biblical theology, people feel like you're not even addressing the text that's right in front of them, right? So you want to do biblical theology appropriately in a sermon, okay? You could say, I'll say this, I, um, I had a sermon I preached here on Ruth chapter 1 recently, and you notice that there's a famine that comes on the land, and that's what causes people to go to Moab. Okay. So I was like in my notes, and I, in my original notes, I had an entire biblical theology of famine in there. Why does famine come? Mark's unfaithfulness. What's Israel supposed to do when famine comes? He's supposed to repent, believe, return to God. And the ironic thing is Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, does not lead his people in doing that, right? He leads his people away from the presence of God instead of leading his, his family and his people in corporate repentance, okay? But it's also interesting because who else abandoned the promised land at time of famine? Abraham did. Jacob did, right? 
And who bore the brunt of the consequences? The wife. Just like Naomi, right? There's, there's, there's connections there. I did not put any of that in my sermon. Because do people really need to know biblical theology of famine to get the point of the text? Do they really need to connect it intertextually to Abraham? No. Does it help draw the story? Sure. But in one sermon on Ruth 1, I'm not going to use biblical theology for everything. It's just going to... I'd rather spend that time encouraging people. If I have three minutes to do a biblical theology of famine or three minutes to encourage people, I'm going to do three, three minutes to encourage people. So, talk about this text. 1 Samuel 15, 24 through 31. Okay? How do you appropriately use biblical theology preaching this text? Okay, so let's come back together. So, if you're... If you're assigned to preach this text on a Sunday, maybe you're even preaching through 1 Samuel, right? How do, you, how do you preach this text using appropriate biblical theology? What, what connections would you make? Kingship? Okay, help me understand that more. You mean you do a biblical theology of king? Like you start with Adam and you go all the way through the end? Okay. What's that? Kingship transferred? Is that what you're saying? Sin? What about sin? Yeah, we can connect it to his sin, too. Yeah, I, th- I think you can mention, you know, this idea of a failed king goes all the way back to Adam. And then Noah, right? And you can make these connections like that. Yeah, I think that's appropriate. Good. What else could you do? Now, I wouldn't spend my entire sermon on that. I, I would probably do it like I just mentioned. Like, I would probably do it in, like, 30 seconds. I think, I think longer than that, you're going to... Maybe 60 seconds. I, I just wouldn't spend a ton of time doing a whole biblical theology of failed kings. I think it just doesn't help people. But, yeah, go ahead. People come, why do people come to church? They come to church to know what they need to believe about Jesus. Not to hear a biblical theology of kingship, right? You'll kill people if all you do is a biblical theology of kingship for 60 minutes. I'm not saying you're going to do that, but... Yeah, go ahead, Samuel. God is the one who gives true repentance. Good, yeah. You could do a, a circumcised heart connection there. That's great. Someone else, someone who hasn't talked yet. I, I, we already heard from you, and our time is limited, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, and Jesus. Good. Yeah, I think Second Samuel, if you're preaching this and you don't mention Second Samuel 7, um, people are going to really miss the significance of this text. The significance of this text serves, it serves as a foil to David's kingdom, right? Remember our hermeneutics class, what foils were? They show either the good qualities or the bad qualities of the protagonist. Saul serves as a foil here to David, and, and the Lord departing from Saul serves as a foil. I mean, it's an explicit foil in the Second Samuel 7 text. I will not treat your son like I treated Saul. Good. Which ultimately comes in Christ, right? The one who has an everlasting kingdom. One, one interesting connection, I think, is in John 19, 23 through 24. I might make this connection. <clears throat> when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took, they took his garment and divided the garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each also his tunic. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Tear it. Let us cast lots for whose it shall be. The tunic of Jesus was not torn. Because he has a united kingdom that will never be torn from him. 
I might make that connection. Yeah, with the tunic of Saul that's torn. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, probably an echo. Or maybe maybe an allusion to this text because you have a, a garment that's torn. Like it's, it, it would be, an echo, an echo usually takes a, a biblical, and people def, define these things differently, right? Redemption. What text is being echoed when we say redemption? Well, <laughs> how long do you have for me to tell you how many there are? Uh, allusions tend to have one text in mind and not just like a flood of text. So probably an illusion, if it is one. I'm not saying it has to be. But. Yeah, I, Psalm, Psalm it connects it as a prophecy, for sure. Yeah. Um, but I think you can also connect it. A, a text can have more than one referent, right? Just because there's a quotation doesn't mean it's not also an illusion. Good, let's go to Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. If you're preaching this, so we did an Old Testament example. Okay, so remember, again, what, we're do, we, what we want is our biblical theology to explain the text. We don't want to obscure the text. We don't want biblical theology to be the main thing we're doing on Sunday morning. Biblical theology can serve as an illustration, right? Some of the best illustrations in the Bible. Okay, some of the best illustrations for sermons come right from the Bible itself, right? And biblical theology helps us do that. 